Welcome to Jonathan Reed's Old Newspapers, Episode 2. In tonight's episode, we're going back to Monday, March 13th, 1900, 121 years ago. The United States House of Representatives voted 126 to 120 in favor of passage of the Gold Standard Act, also known as the Overstreet Act, and the measure was sent to President William McKinley for his signature. On the same day, at 10 a.m., British forces marched into Bloemfontein, the capital of the Orange Free State, and took possession. Led by the Royal Engineer Corps, C.E. Shaw captured the Orange Free State flag atop the Capitol building, replacing it with a white flag. Mayor Kellner and other officials, reported Lord Roberts, met me two miles from the town and presented me with the keys to the public offices. When Roberts and his soldiers entered the city at noon, he was cheered by the conquered Burrs. And now, tonight's paper, the New York Tribune. Let's start with a section on page five called Incidents in Society. The Lenten sewing class known as the Helping Hand, organized by Mrs. John C. Westervelt, held its second meeting yesterday at the home of Mrs. Westervelt, number 7th West 50th Street. Some of the members present were Mrs. Daniel Butterfield, Mrs. James Glover, Mrs. Theodore Kane, Mrs. Henry Davis, Mrs. H. Victor Newcomb, Mrs. Frederick Sheldon, Mrs. Charles D. Stickney, Mrs. Louis Pooler, Mrs. Charles Cammon, Mrs. John Duet, Mrs. J. M. Mullenberg Bailey, Mrs. Philip Livingston, Mrs. David Folsom, Mrs. Folden Cabot Jr., Mrs. Alfred Tuckerman, and Mrs. Walter Rutherford. A fashionable audience greeted George Grossmith yesterday afternoon when he appeared and gave several of his clever recitations in aid of the Summer Rest Society, whose purpose is to support at Woodcliffe, New Jersey, a home for women of good position, but whose purses are limited. Another meeting of the Monday evening bowling club was held last evening in the tennis building in West 41st Street. After the play, there was an informal supper. Among the players last night were Miss Eleanor Swain, Miss Edith Martin, Miss Clark, Miss Williams, Miss Pansy Roosevelt, Miss Julia Edwards, Miss Angelin Church, Miss Edith Clarkson Jay, Miss Ethel Gould, Miss Maud Wolfe, Miss Agnes C. Adams, Miss Lowe, the Misses McClure, Miss Helen Bulkley, Miss Hattie Fellows, Dr. John Izzard Middleton, H. Lennox Mott, William McLaughlin, Cornelius N. Bliss, Jr., Kenneth Selly, Rodney Proctor, William Proctor, and Stuart Woodford Ames.
the marriage of Miss Gertrude Vaughn E. Hoy, the daughter of Mrs. Henry Hoy of Morristown, New Jersey, to Ridley Watts, will be solemnized in St. Peter's Protestant Episcopal Church, Morristown, on Thursday, May 24th. Mr. Watts is the son of Lieutenant William Watts, USN. Mr. and Mrs. J. Rich Steers, with their family, will sail for Europe early next month. They have planned to stay in Europe for at least half a year. Mr. and Mrs. Malcolm Graham of Staten Island will spend the summer months at Belhaven, Connecticut, where they have taken a home for the season. The engagement has been announced in Brooklyn of Miss Lily Lefferts, daughter of Mr. and Mrs. James Lefferts, to Charles Montague Cook, Jr., who is now a student at Yale University, but whose family lives in Honolulu. After their wedding trip, the young couple, whose wedding will probably occur in the spring, will go to the Hawaiian Islands, where they will make their home. Among the well-known society people sailing for Europe today are Mr. Robert Goelette and Mrs. Richard Irvin, who have planned to spend some time sailing on Mrs. Goelette's steam yacht, the Nama, in the Mediterranean, and to visit Greece and the Eastern Islands. Mrs. J. F. D. Lanier, Mr. and Mrs. H. Mortimer Brooks, Mrs. H. R. Bishop, Sir Thomas Colebrook, Mr. and Mrs. T. Motley, Mr. and Mrs. Walter S. Gurney, Jr., the Mrs. Gurney, Mr. and Mrs. John Innes Kane, and Miss Beatrice Goelette. This evening, there will be receptions with music by Mrs. James Speyer at her home, number 259 Madison Avenue, and Mrs. Frank Russick of number 19 East 65th Street. A pleasant incident this evening will be the meeting of the Tuesday Evening Riding Club at Durland's Riding Academy. Madame Schumann-Hank will sing tomorrow at 11 o'clock at the meeting of the Sewing Society to be held at Mrs. Bell's number 52 East 57th Street in aid of the Mothers and Babies Hospital. Among the Easter weddings will be that of Miss Carolyn Roosevelt Lathrop to Frederick T. Goldsmith. The bride is a member of the Vassar Student Society and daughter of Mr. and Mrs. James Roosevelt Lathrop. Big Sale of Oranges Fifty-three carloads of oranges were sold yesterday afternoon at the Erie and Baltimore and Ohio Piers, numbers 20 and 22. North River. Each car contained 362 boxes, and each box averaged 125 oranges. The fruit was all from the Pacific Coast and was shipped by the California Fruit Exchange. The sale began at noon and lasted until 3 o'clock. There was a good attendance, and the bidding was excellent. Including small lots, there were 20,000 packages sold, and the amount of the sale was $48,000. Contribution to Trinity College 
There will be a meeting this morning at 11 o'clock at the home of Mrs. Thomas Wren Ward, number 15th East 9th Street, of the New York Associate Board of Trinity College, the new university for the higher education of Roman Catholic women, which will be open next October at Washington. The Catholic women of New York have decided to endow a chair of philosophy at Trinity College. More than $5,000 in voluntary contributions have already been received by Mrs. Ward, the regent and treasurer of the board, which includes Miss Anne Leary, vice president, and Madame's Geraldine Raymond, Edward H. Anderson, George Waddington, Joseph F. Daly, Thomas Addis Edmit, Frank A. Otis, Jose F. De Navarro, Thomas F. Meager, James Rich Steers, Josephine Marte, John Grote Higgins, Herbert D. Robbins, Sarah R. Lee, Jesse Albert Locke, Edward L. Keyes, Hugo de Fritch, John A. Sullivan, Robert Emmett Robinson of Staten Island, and Miss Drexel. No Trust of Guidebook Companies The Mackey ABC Guide Company announced yesterday that hereafter the company's subscribers would be supplied with Bullinger's Monitor Guide. It was learned that the monk that the Mackey Company had gone out of business because its publication did not pay and had assigned its unfulfilled subscriptions to the Bullinger Company. That is all it amounts to, said the manager of the latter company yesterday. There is no trust. I wish there was. From an advertisement. All from one barrel. Good bread and good pastry. No need to keep two kinds of flour in the house in these days of gold metal flour. One barrel serves for all baking. Bread, biscuits, pies, pastries. Leading bakers, far famed for their good bread, endorse Washburn Crosby's gold metal flour. Skilled pastry cooks ask for no better material to make their tempting dainties. Insist on getting the genuine gold metal flour made from the best spring wheat, milled only by the Washburn Crosby Company, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Miss Dempsey released from tombs. Queen of the Holland Dames secures bail. Lavinia H. Van Westervelt Dempsey, Queen of the Holland Dames, who was held by Magistrate Bran in the Center Street Police Court on Saturday in 500 bail on a charge of grand larceny preferred by Robert Troop of number 102 West 93rd Street, was admitted to bail yesterday afternoon. William S. Harlan of St. Lawrence Avenue, borough of the Bronx, went on her bond. She left the tombs in company with her brother, Guy Dempsey, and her bondsman. Earlier in the afternoon, Albert W., both, who keeps a cigar and stationery store at number 161 Division Avenue, Brooklyn, 
offered to go on the bond. He said he owned a house valued at $10,000 in Kings County. He presented Felix R. McCluskey, a lawyer of Number 5 Lee Avenue, who, he said, had been engaged by a member of the Holland Dame Society of Brooklyn to defend Miss Dempsey. Magistrate Braun would not accept Mr. Both. Guy Dempsey said that he did not know either Both or McCluskey. Nagel flounders over Hyatt's bid. After several evasions, refers questioners to Captain Gibson. Percival E. Nagel, the commissioner of street cleaning, did some floundering yesterday when he was asked why he had recommended the rejection of the bid made by George H. Hyatt for the privilege of picking over the city's refuse delivered at the dumps. Mr. Hyatt offered to pay $1,750 a week to the city, with the understanding that he was to have the privilege of picking over the refuse at the dump at the East River and 80th Street, which is to be discontinued, as well as at the other dumps. But when he understood that one dump was to be closed, he still expressed his willingness to let his bid stand. The present contractor lacks the scows and picks over the refuse at the dump and pays only $940 a week to the city. Controller Kohler has expressed curiosity to know why Commissioner Nagel recommends the rejection of Mr. Hyatt's bid, which was the highest made. Mr. Nagel said to newspapermen yesterday that he recommended the rejection of Mr. Hyatt's bid for the best interests of the city. But when he was asked to explain how the city's interests were to be helped by the rejection of the bid, he said, Why? The bid was for the privilege which included a dump at East 80th Street that has to be given up for good reasons. Therefore, the bid was not valid. You can't bid for a privilege that doesn't exist, can you? But Mr. Hyatt has announced his willingness to let his bid stand, Nagel was told. You'll have to see Captain Gibson, Nagel said. But Captain Gibson recommended the acceptance of Mr. Hyatt's bid. Well, go and see the controller. I don't know Hyatt. Never saw him in my life. The controller has opposed the readvertisement of the bids for the contract, but the Board of Estimate and Apportionment has advanced the proposition to ask for new bids. Wants lawyer to refund fees. Client makes changes against, makes charges against an attorney who denies them. Justice Lawrence was asked in the Supreme Court yesterday by counsel for Adolph Welchers for an order directing George W. Albright, a lawyer, to refund a fee which Welchers paid to him for defending him in a prosecution instituted by the New Home Sewing Machine Company against him for certain frauds alleged by the company to have been carried out by him. Welchers alleged that after he had employed Albright, he found out that he was one of the attorneys for the new home sewing machine company, which was endeavoring to have him indicted. He asserted that he had once retained other attorneys, but that Albright, because he left him, did all he could to induce the grand jury to indict him 
and waited on ex-district attorney Alcott to get him to press the case. The indictment was dismissed, and Welchers sued the sewing machine company for $20,000 damages for false arrest and imprisonment. T.M. Ting, on behalf of Albright, presented an affidavit by his client in which he denied all Welchers' charges and said he never went before the grand jury with regard to getting Welchers indicted. Justice Lawrence adjourned the case. Governor Dyer Prevented by Illness Governor Alicia Dyer of Rhode Island, who is expected to address the pupils of the original School of Industrial Art, number 159 West 23rd Street, yesterday was unable to attend owing to a sudden illness. An exhibition of practical designs by the students was given, and Mrs. Corey, under whose management the school is conducted, had arranged to have Governor Dyer address those present. From page 6, A Hall of Fame The concept of a stately hall as the abiding place or as the shrine of fame is ancient and widespread. It was familiar to art and literature long before Beattie sang of the steep where fame's proud temple shines afar and trite and hackneyed when Hazlitt reminded his audience that the Temple of Fame stands upon the grave. Yet its aptness and its beauty give it perennial freshness and something more. They have led to its material and practical fulfillment, so far as it is within material power to fulfill a spiritual design. The pantheons of Rome and of Paris the Hall of Fame of Munich and Westminster's great Temple of Silence and Reconciliation rise readily to mind as noteworthy examples. Each, in its way, is wholly admirable, yet each falls vastly short of fulfilling the true conception of fame's greatest temple. It would be too much, no doubt, to hope for a perfect fulfillment of it in the stately colonnade, which, through a grateful benefaction, is about to be erected for the purpose upon the crest of the Great Cliff at New York University. Though in situation, material, and design, it may be all that fancy could picture or taste might crave. It will, at any rate, have certain intrinsic features unique in such memorials, and finally significant of the time and place of its origin. This Hall of Fame is not to be erected by some proud conqueror or imperious government for primal purposes of self-laudation, but by one whose name stands hidden in the shadow of a great gift. It is not to be a place of religious worship with sectarian restrictions, nor of burial with an air of mortuary gloom. And those whose names or other memorials are to be placed therein are not to be called by undiscriminating chance, nor dictated by arbitrary power, but are to be so thoughtfully selected by so representative a jury of the nation as to be beyond all cavil those who, the common sense of most, delights to hold in honor. It is well that this nation should have such a shrine to rebuke at once the nil admiral 
nil admirari cynicism, which sees no great men in our history, and the too bumptious spread egoism, which would make all men great. It is well that it should stand within the precincts of the nation's foremost city, in which have lived, or which have at times repaired, those who are worthiest of lasting fame. It is, by no means least of all, a fitting circumstance that it should be confided to the care and should form a part of a great university of science and art and liberal culture. That indeed may be deemed one of the most impressive and significant features of the institution. It is not the field of battle, nor the scene of political authority, nor yet a place of ecclesiastical control that is the repository of fame. No, but a seat of learning. The school is the final guardian of the shrine of fame, as it is also the avenue through which, with happily increasing frequency, that shrine is to be attained. In that fact, in the contrast in that respect between the Pantheon and this Hall of Fame, reposes an age-long chapter of the history of human progress. From the personal column. Dr. Charles W. Dabney, President of the University of Tennessee, has received notice from the French government of his appointment as a member of the Committee on International Awards at the Paris Exposition. A French paper says that the words and music of the Transvaal National Hymn were composed by a Dutch woman, Mademoiselle Catherine Felicie Van Rees, in 1875, at the request of Mr. Burgers, former president of that state, Mademoiselle Van Rees was born in 1871 at Zutphen, the town chiefly known to Englishmen by the story of Sir Philip Sidney's heroic death there three centuries ago. It is announced by John Hopkins University that Dr. Charles H. Hereford, professor of the English language and literature in the University College of Wales, will be the lecturer this year in the Percy Turnbull Memorial Lectureship of Poetry. This foundation provides for an annual course by someone who has gained distinction as a writer of poetry or as a critical student of the poetic art. The subject of Professor Herford's course at Johns Hopkins will be English Poetry Viewed and Interpreted in Its Principal Periods, it will consist of eight lectures and will extend from April 23rd to May 4th. Major General Ralph Arthur Penryn Clements, DSO, who is commanding the 12th Brigade in Natal, has been all through the Zulu War of 1879. The youngest son of the late sub-dean of Lincoln Cathedral, he was born in 1855 and was educated at Rossell. He joined the 24th Regiment, now known as the South Wales Borderers, in 1874, and became Colonel in 1896. He gained his DSO in the Burmese Campaign of 1885-89, to where his bravery was con- conspicuous, he being wounded twice, once severely. The Talk of the Day 
speaking of the agitation over the play Sappho, M. de Regnier, now lecturing in Boston, said the other day, I fail to understand the attitude of the public in regard to it. In France, there has been nothing of the sort, although Madame Rejane has produced there a dramatization of the same work. She studied the play as the author intended that it should be studied. We saw the moral in it. We scrutinized the acting. We were not looking for immorality, and we found none. Judge. So, the prisoner hit you on the head with a brick, did he? McGinty. Yes, your honor. Judge. But it seems he didn't quite kill you anyway. McGinty. No, bad sex to him, but it's wishing he had of do be. Judge. Why do you wish that? McGinty. Begory, then off would have seen the scoundrel hanged for murder. From Chicago News. A correspondent of the Westminster Gazette asks, Does it not show great generosity on the parts of the inhabitants of Kimberley in South Africa in reference to the proposal to arrest an equest- erect an equestrian statue to Mr. Cecil Rhodes, that after he has put them on horse flesh for so long, they should wish him to put on horseback forever? Baden-Powell's joke. The officers of the Maith King garrison were at mess, and what a mess. Cheer up, lads, remarked Colonel Baden-Powell, taking his second helping of mule steak. We might be worse off. Indeed? I can't imagine it, growled the dyspeptic major. Well, just fancy our diet if the automobile had been introduced here from Collier's Weekly. Nome City, the new mining town on the Alaskan coast, already has a newspaper, a four-page sheet which measures about 12 by 16 inches, but which sells at 50 cents a copy. The new journal styles itself the Nome Gold Digger, and its first issue contains some interesting advertisements. The bill of fare of the principal restaurant includes tenderloin steak at $3, reindeer steak $3, ptarmigan $3, boiled mackerel $1.50, coffee and donuts $0.50, corned beef hash $1, sausage $1.50, fried ham $1, salmon $1, Three eggs, two dollars. Loaf of bread, twenty-five cents. Toasted cheese, one dollar. Two-story, seven-room dwellings are advertised for rent at two hundred dollars a month. Wagons and teams for hauling are hired out at ten dollars an hour. A shave costs one dollar, and a haircut one dollar and fifty cents. Extenuating Circumstances You see, said Bronco Bob, the prisoner offered some extenuating circumstances, so we concluded we'd just put him out of town instead of lynching him. What was the extenuating circumstances? inquired Rattlesnake Pete. Well, a bunch of papers came to town containing all kinds of war news, 
and we concluded that this feller was entitled to some consideration for not using lidite or dum-dum bullets. From the Washington Star. You have been listening to Jonathan Reed's Old Newspapers. Thank you for joining me on this journey into the past. I'm your host, Jonathan Cohen, wishing you a good night, sweet dreams, and a smooth tomorrow.